Lecture One of Six Lectures on Literature by C. H. Herford. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Permanent Power of English Poetry. Sheraton Hughes, Manchester, 1902. At a time when our commemoration of the first great English king is still fresh in memory, it is scarcely unseasonable to take a text from two old English poems which Alfred may have read, the less so since, in their case, a millennium is not altogether that vivid reminder of the abysmal changes which thirty generations bring about in the civil and political life of a great people, which when all is said, it is in his but rather a new illustration of the fact that in some deep and significant as well as in some elementary and commonplace things the remote time is in touch with the present and a thousand years in truth but as yesterday when it is past whoever takes up the old lays picturesquely entitled by modern editors the wanderer and the seafarer must feel in them something of the same strange half pathetic interest that belongs for each of us to the unconsciously prophetic scribblings of our own childhood in the seafarer we hear a young man discourse with an old the young man already breathes the wanderlust of the elizabethans their joyous eagerness to taste the perils of the sea and achieve something worthy of note before they are called across the wider sea from which no traveller returns the woods are in bloom he cries the hamlets grow fair the meadows are gay the world is alive they are all calling the youth of spirit forth on his way whoever meaneth to wander afar on the paths of ocean for the best renown to be won by a man on the lips of the afterworld is this that ere he went hence he manfully strove by deeds of valour with fellness of foes the hero of the wanderer like the old man in the seafarer lacks this zest of adventure but he has other qualities as fine and as significant for the future solitary amid the wintry waters of the northern seas he succumbs to sorrow and sleep and in his dreams sees the beloved lord in whose hall he sat and seems to embrace him and kiss him and lay his head and hand on his knee as he had done of old then he starts up and sees the grey waves breaking drearily as before and the sea-birds dipping and darting around heedless as ever that man is full of care then he longs the more bitterly for his dear ones the memory of his kindred courses through his heart he greets them with joy and eagerly scans them but the phantom faces float again away and of the old familiar words but few they utter we easily recognise in such passages as this the passion for the home for the kindred which has lived in heroic breasts at all times beside the passion of adventure the two sometimes making terms with each other as best they can sometimes harmoniously fused as in wordsworth's happy warrior who though endued as with a sense and faculty for storm and turbulence is yet a soul whose master bias leans to home-felt pleasures and to gentle scenes in poetry too we can distinguish the counterparts of these passions 
there is the poetry of the wing which soars and roves and the poetry of the foot which grasps and holds in a somewhat different sense from plato's we may ascribe the power of the wing to poetry which seemingly emancipates itself from reality to wander in regions of visionary beauty or strangeness while the strength of the foot in a sense different from ruskin's belongs to the poetry which lays hold primarily of the fact of the common stuff of experience of the concrete thing no poetry worthy of the name is without some degree of both qualities perhaps it may appear that part of the permanent worth of the poetry of the english race lies in the frequent possessing of both in a high degree so that it has reached extraordinary heights of romance without losing touch with earth and moved securely upon the surface of common things without ceasing to be inspired one no modern literature can compare in serene perfection of attainment with the greek but as in the realm of ethics so in the realm of art the harmony at which we wonder was facilitated by limitations partly inevitable as the high individual culture of the athenian citizen was founded upon the labour of slaves so the harmonious grace of his poetry was won by rejecting from its habitual province whole spheres of life beauty was won by eliminating the uncomely things not by winning them into the sphere of art an ideal image of the world was gained by ignoring that part of the world which does not lend itself to ideality in the drama no vast ethical gulf yawns between the antagonists prometheus and zeus orestes and the eumenides antigone and creon are mighty opposites but each stands for a principle each is battling in his own eyes for right each is carrying out some element of the moral ideal aristotle refused to admit the perfect villain as a subject of tragedy greek tragedy was the completest artistic expression of a people whose ethical thinking starts from the conviction that no man willingly does wrong that evil doing is a form of ignorance an analysis unsatisfactory not only to the worldly conscience which testifies with ovid that we often know the better and do the worse but also to the deeper modern mind which feels with a hebraic intensity unknown to the greeks the evil of evil the sinfulness of sin hebraic we have come to call this intense ethical conviction and it is certainly the fundamental inspiration of hebrew poetry hebraism is not altogether favourable to poetry it runs easily into an ascetic puritanism which revolts against the loftier joys of a poet as well as against his more sensuous luxuries of image and song it makes against all deliberate structure and elaborated form its poetry sweeps us along in a rustling wind of lyric indignation it does not put on the semblance of life in ordered organisms of epic and drama it gives the poet at once his problem and his opportunity by laying bare before him black abysses of evil through which he has to find his way yet while it discourages an easy optimism it lends a note of sublimer joys to the triumph of a valiant faith so that poets less than a dante or a milton confronted with the world warfare of good and evil have reached that note of sublime assurance 
which came from Hebrew and Greek alike in the great crises of national peril, whether it rested on faith in a great divine champion. Then they called on the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses, or whether it rested on faith that duty is more than death, as in the great epitaph of Simonides upon those who fell at Thermopylae. Wayfarer, tell the Spartans that we died doing their bidding. At all times and among all peoples, when a man turns, in the midst of need and stress, to calm reflection, and utters it, there is, as Hegel finely says, an approach to poetry, and Hebraism, by as it were canonising and consecrating that mood, which looks from the transient to the permanent relations of things, has made that approach to poetry more accessible and more frequented. Sometimes the vision of things in their eternal relations has overpowered the vision of their transient ones. Sometimes it lifts these into a higher and more eloquent lustre, as the meanness and squalor of Jewish poverty are lifted into grace by the coming of the Princess Sabbath, when, every Friday evening, in the twilight, suddenly the charm is broken and the dog grows anew a human creature. In Christian times the Hebrew poet has always been more prone to the rapt averted than to the open irradiating gaze, to a poetry of wistful romance, not of lofty realism. Far off Jerusalem, ruined and desolate, dominates the dreams of Jehuda Banhelevi, and his pearls of poetry are like those Threnenperlen, wept over the fall of Jerusalem, pearls which, as Heine sings, strung upon the golden thread of rhyme, became that famous song which is sung in all the scattered tents of Jacob the world over, on the anniversary of its destruction. It is only when the Hebraic passion for goodness has been fused with classic inspiration of poetry that this rapt averted gaze becomes the piercing scrutiny of the life nearby, such as we find in Dante. Of him, yet more truly than of Milton, it could be said that he passed the flaming walls of space and time, flamantia moenia mundi, not the secrets of the abyss to spy, but to lay bare the more momentous secrets of the heart of man. But Dante's Hebraic intensity was moulded by the art of Rome, the third of the ancient nations whose literary bequest was of capital moment for modern poetry. Virgil, his master and fountainhead, was the most national as well as the greatest of Roman poets, the loftiest embodiment of the mind and ideal of Rome at the height of her power. He was the first European poet of the empire, the first who uttered the proud self-consciousness of a ruling race. No other Roman poet found so mighty a disciple as Virgil found in Dante. But almost all Roman poetry which counted in the making of Europe bore, like Virgil's, the imperial stamp. It breathes the stir and stress, the refinement and affectation, the magnificence and the squalor, the weariness and the satiety of a great world city. Satire always claimed to be of Roman birth. Certainly, in the hands of Horace it became an instrument of urbane and ironical castigation, and in the hands of Juvenal a weapon of invective, which the genius of the Roman state might seem to have shaped for itself, and which every modern polity, 
as it reached the civic maturity and the urban corruption of rome has sought to wield but even its derivative poetical forms acquired in the roman world a metropolitan flavour the blithe open-air pastoral of theocritus full of the blaze and perfume of the sicilian noontide became the virgilian eclogue with its literary shepherds and its uncertain scenery touched with the sentiment of a poet inured like theocritus to court and city but far more inwardly mastered by their spell and the luxuriant myth-lore of greece and rome when the warm vitality had almost left it acquired the immortality of art in the brilliant mosaics of ovid exempt thenceforth from the decay which befalls every legendary faith but also desiccated of all that gives faith hold upon the blood and of all that betrays the naive instinctive fancy whence it sprang thus upon the mythic tale as upon the rustic shepherd and the rustic satirist roman poetry wrought a transformation into something sumptuous superb and brilliant but hard the wild acanthus culled from its shy haunts along the forest glades to flash in marble from corinthian capitals for the adornment of the roman forum where the ways of all the world met and the ends of the earth came together two for many centuries as we know the influence of the whole ancient world greek hebrew or roman in literature was communicated through the medium of the metropolitan and in the strict sense secular atmosphere of rome for homer there were dares and dictis for the hebraism of early christianity the vulgate and the metropolitan church of peter hardly before herder gathered the treasures of old hebrew song hardly before goethe and byron and shelley in their several ways rediscovered the prometheus legend did greek or hebraic poetry count among the forces making for the elemental the ursprünglich in humanity not for its complex culture and civilized convention in the poetic as in the political world the dream of the roman empire lingered an ineluctable memory a presence not to be put by mingling with and transforming the traditional poetry as well as the traditional polity of the germanic tribes turning the frankish king into an emperor of rome and building upon the basis of his exploits against saxon and saracen cycles of epic lays significantly called romances and chansons de geste the imagined record of the res gestae of a new roman people the hero of romance is a last reverberation of roman heroism the germ of the romantic world is the fable the legend of rome in its most magnificent form the dream of rome took shape in the great work of dante for whom the empire of caesar was the temporal fabric divinely appointed to receive the church of christ guarded by miraculous intervention from the ruin threatened by the gaul and by hannibal and destined as he thought to save his distracted country from the evil rule of that church itself yet the legend of rome which he so prominently pursued was the least vital element of his work hardly more vital than the legendary rome of the romances the imperialism of virgil imposes still it ran in the blood of his race it was not his personal creed but one if i may adapt matthew arnold's famous phrase 
which history wrote with her sheer and penetrating power upon his page but dante's imperialism was a phantom passionately clasped but ever eluding him like the shade of anchises it was not that way the genius of modern poetry beckoned how comes it dante cries the greatest of living italian poets carducci in his eloquent sonnet how comes it that i lift adoring vows and tongue to thy haughty image and bend over the verse by which thou wast once outworn and see the sun go down and again the young dawn rise i hate thy holy empire and i would have plucked the crown with my sword from the brows of thy good frederick church and empire are become a mournful wreck but over these soars thy song and rings this message to heaven jove passes and the poet's hymn abides Cicaducci rime nove it was then from other sources than the memory of rome however heightened by romance that the true greatness of modern poetry was to spring italy spain france germany england and the celtic fringe of ireland and wales have each developed some special insight or some special skill have made some province of poetry peculiarly their own beside the broad domain which the whole western world as compared with india or persia cultivates in common italy which had listened with but half an ear to the romances of chivalry won her highest triumphs in poetry by touching the spirit of chivalry to finer issues transfixing its exalted love with the wonderful imagery and melody of petrarch or gaily travestying its prodigal heroics with the radiant wit and laughter of ariosto even dante's stupendous work has its roots in a troubadour's love-song it is the maiden adoration of the vita nuova expanded and articulated into a passionate apprehension of the divinely animated cosmos in all its concrete infinity of good and evil of love and hatred of laughter and tears but even dante suggests the point at which italian poetry must be held to have always fallen short in the ideal imitation of a great human action in epic or drama the divine comedy has no plot dante himself passes on through scenes of ever-varying circumstance and complexion rich in incidental drama and pathos but their succession is determined by no human will or passion by no indignant achilles by no vengeful satan but by the rigid and inflexible order of the universe through which he makes his way the dynamics of his poem are derived not from humanity but from dogma to epic action ariosto hardly made pretence and tasso who did produced when all is said not so much an epic as a beautiful romance garnished with epic machinery and italian drama has with rare exceptions crossed the bounds of prose only to fall into the scylla of the frigidly antique or the charybdis of the operatic incapable of that ideal imitation of life which is more real than actuality and more poetic than romance three and something of this incapacity must be said with all reserves to attach on the whole to the poetic achievements of the other romance peoples how vast the debt of european culture is to the accomplished singers of mediaeval france need not be told but their greatest services to literature 
lay in providing picturesque material to which poets of more virile faculty elsewhere communicated the breath of life the melodies of provence wakened the spirit of dante the busy versifiers of troyes prepared the way for a wolfram a benoit for a boccaccio a jean de meung for a chaucer with all their fascinating and unfailing grace the early french romancers rarely caught the finer breath of romance on the other hand their realism was the realism of the esprit gaulois gay malicious intelligent full of verve and wit but fastening with zest on weakness and folly indifferent to beauty incredulous of virtue fundamentally hostile to romance for a moment the esprit gaulois appears in villon invested in that lurid flame of poetry which cynicism pushed to the furthest verge will sometimes engender when the solid world becomes evanescent under the disintegrating eye and death and decay acquire a haunting pathos from the merciless analysis which discerns them everywhere a generation later a mightier realist than villon with nothing of the cynic but his hatred of shams poured forth in fantastic disguise the huge joy of life the inexhaustible vitality of sense and thought the riotous humour which in an aristophanes in a shakespeare found expression in poetic laughter but rabelais's laughter is not poetic nor is moliere's and in these two the french spirit made its nearest approach to the wonderful realism of shakespeare nor on the other hand did the more choice and idealistic vein of french literature lead for the present to first-rate achievement in poetry french classicism under the guidance of scaliger tended to impoverish as well as to refine and when all is said the sublimity of corneille and the pathetic beauty of racine must be held to fall something short of full poetic vitality they used in their highest flights a language almost nothing of which would have been impossible in prose and up to the close of the eighteenth century there remained as gray noticed no distinction between the french of prose and verse a most significant fact but when gray made that acute remark the train was already laid for a wonderful expansion of the scope and horizon of french poetry such as nothing in its history foretold rousseau is the true starting point of this rejuvenescence for our purpose which is concerned with results not causes it is needless to touch the history of that movement which under the name of romanticism first brought the french genius into vitalizing contact with the wellsprings of poetry which had begun to flow in germany england in the north and then sent it back to recover the infinite treasures of speech material which an academic fastidiousness had allowed to decay from the days when hugo led the cenacle of eighteen twenty seven and defied classicist paris with cromwell and henani until to-day french poetry has held its own on at least equal terms with the poetry of england germany and america and many persons who do not echo the dithyrams of mr swinburne hold hugo himself to have been since the death of goethe the first of european poets it may be said at least that the french contribution to the world's poetry appears concentrated and focused in hugo what musset gautier proudhon and the rest have done then or since 
is included broadly speaking in the same circle of achievement occupies particular provinces of the same broad domain obviously as with all the greater poetry of the time it is with lyrical not epic or dramatic genius that we here have to do hugo's dramas owe whatever effects they exerted or retain to their lyric splendour his magnificent légende des siècles under the semblance of a vast epic of humanity is a sequence of symbolic chants utterances of the poet's vague but grandiose enthusiasms and animosities through mythic imagery the range of hugo's lyric is in spite of the slender stock of ultimate ideas from which it springs immense the specific limitations of wordsworth coleridge shelley and keats do not touch him nature and humanity the common and the wonderful hellenism and gothic are equally vocal to him and with the backward gaze of the romantics which made the schlegels and teak wordsworth and coleridge reactionaries in politics he united the revolutionary passion of byron the chatiments have no parallel in modern literature save the vision of judgment but his wide susceptibility was strikingly defective at various points where theirs was strong marvellously alive to all the sense delights of the natural world he was no lover of nature like wordsworth she was a magazine of images and metaphors which he rifled with the utmost skill to weave them together in gorgeous phantasmagorias of his own hence while nothing can exceed the grandiose splendour of his landscape it wants those unobtrusive flashes which wordsworth in a quiet phrase so often conveys more than any english romantic he is emancipated from the bondage of the world he lives in compels the tumult of nature's forms and lines to fall into the harmonies he imposes to dance to the music of his rhythms and polarise itself in his incessant antitheses his fundamental inspirations the vague impassioned ideas about which all his imagery gathers and revolves are drawn from humanity rather than from nature progress compassion duty heroism misery humanity rather than nature invokes in him the recognition of the mysterious the divine his radically anthropomorphic imagination obliterates the natural form with the human symbol like shelley he is a great myth-maker but shelley's myth-world has something of the naivete of primeval nature-worship hugo's is the voluptuous olympus of a romantic homer alive with pageant and drama with war and council mingling the sublime and the grotesque splendour and deformity mystery and squalor the spiritual and the bourgeois it is worth while pausing a moment to compare the ways in which these two great myth-making imaginations of france and england bodied forth the visions which possessed and transported each the fated hour arrives the soul of the universe asserts its supremacy in a sudden cataclysm over tyranny and evil the old gods fall and man rises to his ideal height emancipated from superstition and sin the clashing discords melt into harmonious accord in shelley's imagination all this takes shape as a lyric drama in which earth and air and ocean and moon and stars break forth in song which seems only to set to music their pulsing life their melting colours 
their undulating loveliness of profile, their bright evanescence of cloud and foam. Hugo's dream finds vent through a more astonishing, though less beautiful, symbolism. In the wonderful satire of the first Légion des Siècles, we remember how the fawn-like Pan discourses to the listening gods of the beginning of the world and the nascence and evolution of man. As his tale advances, he is gradually transformed. His shaggy deformity grows beautiful. They feel its charm. Don't look out at his eyes. They grow uneasy and bodeful. At last he prophesies their overthrow at the hands of that dark final god, whom man calls no more. And as he spoke, the satyr became enormous, greater first than Polypheme, then greater than Typhon, then greater than Titon, and than Athos. Boundless space entered into his shadowy form. He grew before their eyes as a promontory grows to the approaching sailors. Upon his brow lay the pallor of a strange dawn. His hair was a forest. The waves, rivers, lakes rushed from his deep thighs. His horns became peaks of Caucasus and Atlas. Thunders rolled about him with heavy crash. Plains and meadows trembled on his sides, and his protuberances grew mountains. Tigers and stags climbed along his face. Aprils flowered along his limbs. Decembers lurked in his armpits, and wandering people asked their way, forlorn in the palm of his hand. Eagles fought in the gaping mouth. The lyre became gigantic at his touch, sang, wept, murmured, thundered, shrieked. Hurricanes were entangled in its seven strings like flies in a cobweb. His terrific breast was full of stars. He cried, The future, as made by the heavens, is the escape into the boundless infinite. It is the spirit from all sides penetrating the thing. Make place for the divine atom that is fire and dew place for the radiation of the universal soul a king means war and a god means night liberty life and faith on the ruins of dogma everywhere one light one genius everywhere place for the all i am pan jupiter to thy knees this transformation in its magnificence and its audacity its sublimity trembling on the verge of the grotesque fairly represents if not the supreme achievement of french romanticism yet the qualities which distinguish the greatest romantic poetry of france from that of germany or of england here above all is the lyrisme the irresponsible titanic fancy building up the world and breaking it down at will symptom of emancipated genius joyously shaking off the classic bondage of centuries here the animalism and the spirituality tossed together, the satyr's gross body expanded into a universe which yet palpitates with harmony and love, symptom of a national intellect which has oscillated, as no other, between the heights of idealism, the fullness of sense, between Vion and Saint-Louis, Rabelais and Pascal, Goncourt and Lamennais. In French Romanticism these two strands of the national life till then severed met and blended with results of almost unequalled splendour for the imagination however chaotically vague to the intellect and through the tumultuous splendour of the unique organ of expression thus created there glowed that passion for humanity which no other people has so continuously felt 
or so energetically characterised and promoted, and which, if it cannot alone create its poetic instrument, yet, wherever it touches an instrument already tuned, wakens it more surely than any other passion to prophetic notes, makes it the trumpet of a prophecy to unawakened earth. 4. It was from very different points of view, and under the stress of very different instincts, that the German people approached the problems of poetry. Alone among the peoples of the West, the Germanic tribesman never learned permanently the lesson of Rome, though his imagination never ceased to be haunted by the Roman dream. A German king received the imperial crown, and for centuries the world saw the strange spectacle of a Roman Empire, nominally the supreme temporal power in Europe, and wielded by Germans, but of which no part so little recalled the imperial Roman rule as Germany itself. The brilliant originality of the French mind has always tended to work along the lines which make for social cohesion and logical consistency. The profounder and more complex originality of the German has continually borne him aloof into ideal particularities of his own, while still haunting him with the dream of harmony and wholeness. No people has felt so keenly the differences, ultimately unfathomable, among men, the mysterious depths of character, the regions of being which lie deeper than expression, deeper than consciousness. None has been checked by such persistent instincts of kinship and unity from accentuating individuality into isolation. The Leibnizian monad, with its resolute identity, was German. So was Fichter's, with its all-embracing totality. Hence it was reserved for the Germanic peoples to express in their poetry the individuality of character which the Greeks had cared to seize only under broad outlines, and to recur again and again with the fascination of inborn sympathy and racial experience to those conflicts of character with itself, from which the Greeks had on the whole turned away, and which, in the poetry of the Romance peoples, present themselves mainly in the more superficial form of a debate between contending motives in the forum of the intellect. In Germanic poetry, character is apt to be less easily interpretable to intelligence. After all analysis has done its work, insoluble residue are left, forces are felt struggling for the mastery, and obscurely moulding conduct and colouring speech before they become explicit in consciousness. Character, in short, has a history, and its end is shadowed in its first beginnings, its first beginnings in its end. Parzival, through the naive errors of the fool, gradually works out the wisdom of the pure in heart. Wilhelm Meister, seeking his father's asses, finds at last his kingdom. Faust, led by the spirit which denies through the pleasures which destroy, emancipates himself by the energy which creates and affirms. Development of character is a field of literature which has been cultivated more brilliantly elsewhere, but nowhere so consciously and ardently as in Germany. In general we may say that the Greek conception of organic growth, which the scientific and philosophic intellect of Germany did so much to elaborate and expound, has been, from Goethe onwards, and in Goethe pre-eminently, 
an idee mere of german poetry the idea of an organism where each part is vital and shares in and contributes to the vitality of the whole that seemed to reconcile those two conflicting instincts of individualism and community before which german intellect through its whole history had oscillated it provided an expressive formula for the strength and the limitations of the poetry which centres in goethe bold and rapid movement energetic action whatever detaches and isolates men from the community in which they live or the soil of which they are sprung are alien to it it has its moments of greatness even here but they are gifts of fortune not of nature how poor is the action of faust compared to its thought and passion on the other hand with what exquisite instinct goethe renders the life which draws directly from the community in which it moves and from the soil in which it springs hermann and dorothea may be called types if we will but goethe's types are never the abstractions denuded of individual colouring which we associate with the term they are individuals in whom all that is characteristic and expressive in the race all that recalls its history or foreshadows its future bears the stamp of its habits or its haunts meets together in one luminous point hermann and dorothea are such luminous points in which the life-history of an endless vista of german manhood and womanhood may be read all the business of life comes into the story quite naturally we discuss the whole economy of the little country town we get to know how it lives we see its orchards gardens vineyards and reckon their yield here was once more a true epos where to recall hegel's phrase once more everything that a nation is indeed finds utterance goethe's wonderful epic feeling for the springs of story had its counterpart as we know in a not less wonderful lyric feeling for the springs of song and here he was only the most perfect of a throng of singers whose collective song is not to be matched by the volkslied of any other people of the german volkslied as it lives on all german lips to-day a great part is of known origin the work of accomplished and famous poets heine lenau storm goethe but they all sang with the music of an immemorial tradition of impersonal volkslied ringing in their ears and set their first notes with sympathetic instinct in tune to its vibrations in intense utterance of the cry of passion the german volkslied at its best does not surpass the greatest songs of burns but it utters it through a far wider range of mood and key and the emotions which gather about myth and folklore are expressed with a simple intensity only to be paralleled in the finest scandinavian ballads how poor is the supernatural part of tamashanta beside erlkonig on the other hand neither in the volkslied nor elsewhere has german poetry excelled in the creation of myth in the bold and free imagination of a hugo or a shelley faust and mephisto and the spectres of the brocken arrest as yet but a deadly chill has fallen upon the symbolic population of the second part brilliant as the rhetoric is with which they are furnished forth and even prometheus and pandora are mortal beside hermann and dorothea the province of germany in poetry is in a peculiar sense 
that which german aesthetic theory has been apt to define as the province of poetry at large to express the ideal consciousness of the people not the towering fabrics of romantic fancy but the native growth of heath and forest wildflowers of song whose most ethereal loveliness is fragrance of the soil and here and there some more massive trunk of a faust in which the same strong sap of germanic passion and idealism rises into spreading boughs that overshadow humanity it must suffice to mention in one word finally that celtic poetry of legend and romance which has played a part still so indeterminate in the literature of europe and of england here we have no longer to do with the literature of a great and organised polity of a united nation of a capital hardly with an ethical ideal the substratum of common legend which the celt shared with other aryan peoples he touched the issues of his own emphasising whatever in it was romantic dreamy wistful mysterious withdrawing it further from prosaic actuality five we have thus passed in summary review the leading european developments of national poetry apart from our own to which by common consent some permanent power attaches it is one of the most obvious and not the least significant distinction of english poetry to have stood either by natural kinship or by capacity of assimilation in more or less close relation to them all almost every great english poet has manifested his germanic kinship by some form of poetic realism many have betrayed or suggested the celtic by glamour of romance the greatest of the elizabethans ignorant of greek evoked the purifying pity and terror of the greeks from the vaster complex of modern life the greatest of the puritans wrought the sublime hebraic warfare of god and devil into a world epic dryden to a large extent and pope in the main were genuine augustans exponents of that hard positive unromantic urban element of the english spirit which has made the anglo-saxons in some sense the romans of the modern world at no period of english history has the positive strain been suppressed or obscured yet its presence has not prevented the high-wrought symbolism and the delicate music of the petrarchan sonnet from finding its most congenial home and haunt on english soil the revolutionary romanticism of hugo was inspired by byron heralded by shelley and the legend of celtic arthur never ceased to haunt the imagination of english poets as his name a cloud wreath clung to the mountain peaks of britain until it was enshrined in the enchanted reverie of tennyson in all these cases english poetry has shown not mere imitative aptness which is not a characteristic english or germanic excellence at all but some latent kinship of faculty nevertheless it is easy to see underlying this kinship a certain controlling bent which in spite of all those various affinities gives to english poetry as a whole something of the detachment the insularity which marks english nationality as a whole shakespeare apart how many of the voices which stir us most deeply waken no response on the continent or are heard with half comprehending good nature as illustrations of our eccentric genius henri bale 
devoted an article to Milton in his Dictionnaire. But it was to Milton the regicide and defender of the English people, a formidable pamphleteer who dabbled amiably in poetry in his leisure hours. Even Hegel, whose judgment of the matter of poetry is usually so penetrating, describes Milton as a praiseworthy example, for his age, of classical culture and elegant correctness of expression. Hegel, Aesthetic, 3.416 Chaucer, Spencer, Wordsworth, however high we may place them in the pantheon of the world's poetry, are deities of the tribe, and the foreign and native critical judgments of Byron are to this day irreconcilably opposed. I am concerned here not with the qualities in English poetry which have most successfully overcome the impediments of alien blood and traditions, but with those through which it has won most lasting hold upon minds, naturally or by sympathetic culture accessible to it. To put the matter first in the most general and abstract terms, I find among the sources of this permanent power a capacity for what I may call waking vision, for seeing with an eye at once imaginative and sane, romantic and alert, visionary and precise. The Greeks were masters here, Dante no less. No Englishman but Shakespeare has this quality in supreme degree, with all that it implies. But English literature and biography are full of approximations to it from either side, as well as, what is equally significant, of excesses in either direction never for long never without more or less violent reaction and recantation has english poetry cut itself adrift from the world of common experience in which ordinary folks move and which denuded of the ideal affinities which to every seeing spirit it discloses we call the world of prose chaucer laughing the insipid romances out of court shakespeare putting to flight the pale elegiac heroines of green and lodge with the radiant womanhood of rosalind and perdita johnson indignantly summoning the audiences which had so long graced monsters to see men pope rejecting the arabesques of the school of cowley in the name of reason and common sense wordsworth repelling the glossy sentimentalities of the landscapists in the name of nature as it is seen and language as it is spoken browning proclaiming through the lips of the dying paracelsus that the poets must know as well as love all these calls renewed in changing accents generation after generation announced varying forms of the same common demand not for prose but for the poetry which shall take in and interpret that world of common experience of which prose is the mutilated abstraction the bald epitome for almost every one of these proclaimers of nature and realism does so take in and interpret that world english poetry has been in a certain sense republican as became the poetry of the oldest commonwealth in europe the most imperious and profound passion for poetry has not prompted often or for long those hegiras to far-off meccas of romance which have marked poetic enthusiasts elsewhere Rousseau fled to the mountains from the world of convention, in a mood of savage isolation, quite unlike the quiet self-consecration to his life's work, with which Wordsworth made his home among his native hills. The French and German romantics fled to the studio from the world of prose, defying the profane and the philistine, 
with long hair and eccentric waistcoats shelley far from shutting himself up in those enchanted caverns of beauty which his fancy so prodigally bodied forth was conspicuous for the quixotic heroism which impelled him to intervene ignorant of fear in the world of prose when any wrong was to be righted or any suffering to be relieved thou wouldst not be saved alone was arnold's noble tribute to his father and an instinct somewhat akin has continually withdrawn english poetry from the barren splendour of the palace of art so that even in that pre-raphaelite school which has most exalted the supremacy of art the artist's passion for beauty has gone along with the deeper sense of its needfulness in all human life and of the fellowship of all who labour in the meanest craft to create it the poet has not abandoned his palace of art but he has turned it into a workshop he would not be saved alone and it was the saving of him that he would not with all its persistent recurrence to nature however english poetry has obviously not been as a whole or largely in the vulgar sense realistic on the contrary no poetry in the world has soared to higher heavens of invention or burst into more silent seas of romance but in an important sense we may say that there are ladders to its heaven and ships for its romantic seas the weird sisters and caliban for all their unearthly remoteness are more accessible to us than hugo's satyr and his three-eyed jupiter coleridge's mariner is burnt in upon our imagination for however we may disbelieve his marvellous experiences no question he has had them the only way to fairyland is after all by the ladder of psychological truth and if shakespeare's supernaturalism and coleridge's are more vital than that of hoffman or fouquet it is because the dim survivals of primeval instinct in our blood which make us respond to fairy and to the mysteries of the sea are there more completely and sympathetically completed and fulfilled so again in the momentary romance of simile and imagery english poetry has together with a vast amount of what is daring and false or true and tame produced in scarcely parallel degree those images which amazingly fresh and novel yet thrill us as only that can which strikes chords deep in our hearts and implicit in all our experience but look the morn in russet's mantle clad walks o'er the dew of yon high eastern hill how irresistible is the breath of dawn communicated by these simple words it is not morn alone who walks there but we and the unnumbered generations before us whose feet have brushed the sparkling dew of the uplands as they watched the daily triumph of light over darkness symbol of the help which comes from the hills as light from the east footnote the illustration and comment are suggested by a striking passage in mr edmund holmes essay what is poetry nineteen hundred in this kind of romance so boldly individual and yet so universal in its appeal so brilliant and yet so human so adventurous and yet so homely english poetry is peculiarly rich it springs one may say from a coincidence of two lines of poetical feeling which in most of the other great poetry of modern europe have run apart the romantic poetry of modern france is unsurpassed in faculty of expression 
unequalled in that last development of it the art of suggesting the unexpressed but its brilliance is like the brilliance of rome somewhat exotic somewhat technical somewhat derivative wanting in that note of primeval affinities in those tones which stir the faint affections the shadowy recollections which if they are not the master light of all our seeing yet lie about the root of all our vision and all our passion in the tenacity of primeval instincts on the other hand lies as we saw much of the characteristic strength of germany in poetry in the direct lyric utterance of the simple emotions which never grow dim of love which is born of the home and of which homes are born of the simple tears and mirth of mother earth she is incomparable but german poetry is wanting in magic of expression together with the exuberant inventiveness of france it lacks that subtle unreason of the imagination which pierces deeper than thought and sentiment and stirs inexplicably the hidden currents which vibrate in both it is the characteristic power of the greatest english poetry to touch this region more intimately by a poetic speech more poetic more hardy more expansive more impossible more inevitable on the whole than any other it is by virtue of that hold upon an ideal which lies in the blood that english poetry has been drawn so persistently and recurrently to what it has called nature its ideal lay not beyond the horizon or beyond the sky or before the beginning of things or beyond their end but nearby in the world of things where primitive man found his fetish from that world whether the infinitely complex detail of human life as in shakespeare or the breathing vitality of the meanest flower that blows as in wordsworth it rings forth the ideal world in the pageant of drama or in thoughts that lie too deep for tears now climbing by the ladder of the impossible now by the steeper ladder of the commonplace shakespeare and wordsworth i hold to be not necessarily the two greatest of english poets but the two whose work utterly unlike as it seems to be is most penetrated with that kind of power which i have ascribed at its best to english poetry sanity in vision the eye set on the thing and the imagination which reads all humanity in a tale or in a flower these were in them both and the works of both devoid of explicit morality or definable dogma are permanent rallying points of those benign forces of which morality and dogma are passing formulations so in a different sense that simple dialogue of the old seafarer and the young finds its solution the springtime glory of adventure and the autumnal longing for return come together and the poet in a more spiritual sense than wordsworth's skylark becomes true to the kindred points of heaven and love by disclosing that they are the same end of lecture one